Well, once again, I'm Steve Tyra, and it's my honor to share the Word of God with you this morning. We are continuing in the Gospel of Luke, in our series in Luke. And if you have Bibles, you can open up to Luke chapter 12. We will be ending Luke chapter 12 uh, this morning. This passage should be printed in your order of worship as well. And I'm going to be reading verses 49 through 59. And so hear the Word of God. Jesus is still speaking. I came to cast fire on earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer puts you in prison, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Thanks be to God, for this is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me as we enter in now? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word, even though it is, once again this week, a challenging word. And so we pray that you send your Holy Spirit upon me, that I may speak it truthfully and winsomely, and that we may see your gospel in it. And you also send your Spirit upon all who are gathered here, that they may have the hearts, minds, and ears to be renewed by that word, made new creations in it. And it's in your name we pray, Lord. Amen. Well, I thought we'd begin this week, as we often do, with a question. And it's a question that will continue the theme from last week. If you were here last week, you know that we began by talking about various stories across cultures, across time, that involved a heroic thief, stories that put uh, thieves in the hero's role. And so we'll be talking about stories again this morning. So here is the question I want you to consider. Have you ever loved a story as a child, only to grow up and realize it's much darker than you thought as a child? Was there ever a story you really liked as a kid, and then you grew up and looked back, and you're like, wow, that was a little bit darker than I realized? You know, many of you know that I have a daughter now. She's actually going to turn one next month. I cannot believe it's been a year since Melissa was born. And now, as the father of a daughter, I'm paying a lot more attention to, to media and stories that are aimed at little girls. And so it's gotten me thinking, what stories will this generation of kids grow up and look back on and say, that was a little bit darker than I realized when I was a kid? Now, I've come up with two, and we'll see if you agree with me. The first is Tangled. If you have a little girl, you might be familiar with this movie. It's based on the story of Rapunzel, which is found in Grimm's fairy tales and other places. And if you've seen the movie, you know that the person on the screen there is Rapunzel's love interest. He rescues her from the tower where she is being kept by an evil witch. And in the movie, this guy's job is pretty easy. At the end of the day, he he gets the girl and everyone lives happily ever after. But in the original story, in Grimm's fairy tales, uh, things are a little bit darker. At one point, the witch figures out that he has been visiting Rapunzel. Just how she figures that out, I'll let you discover for yourself during family story time. It takes her about three months to put it together. And she sets a trap for the prince. She hurls him out 
of the tower, and he lands face first into some rose bushes, and he is blinded upon the thorns. Now, in some versions of the story, he eventually gets his sight back. In other versions, he never does. He remains blind, although I think in every version he does get the girl, so that's something, right? Well, I think more than even Rapunzel, my favorite example of a story that might be a little darker than it seems at first glance is the story of Frozen. Unless you've been living under a rock for the last couple years, you know something about this movie. What you might not know is that it's based on a story by Hans Christian Andersen called The Snow Queen. In fact, in Europe, Disney released the movie under the title Snow Queen because the story is much more familiar in Europe. And so in the story, in the movie rather, Queen Elsa is mostly just sort of a misunderstood girl who's sort of suffering from some bad parenting choices. She's basically a good person at the end of the day, right? In the story, The Snow Queen, things are a little darker. The Snow Queen is a supernatural evil creature, probably demonic, who in the middle of the night snatches small children away from their parents and carries them away to her ice fortress, where they are indeed frozen for all eternity as the queen's prisoners. Something to keep in mind, ladies, as you're singing Let It Go next time. <laughs> now, what's interesting is that the same story by Hans Christian Andersen that inspired the movie Frozen also inspired a, another well-known children's story, and that is C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the wardrobe. In that version, the uh, Snow Queen becomes the White Witch, and that's actually much closer to the original material. But, you know, I was thinking about it. Disney actually owns the movie rights to both these stories. So maybe in the sequel to Frozen that's supposed to be coming out, Queen Elsa will put the land of Narnia under a curse of snow and winter, and the lion Aslan will just have to take her down at that point, although there won't be a Frozen 3, I guess, after that. We can only hope. We'll look forward to that with great anticipation. But these darker versions of these popular children's stories sort of lead us to another question. I think it's the question we really need to grapple with this morning. And that is, what about Jesus? You know, if you were paying attention when we read the scripture this morning, this passage is a little darker than we might be used to. It presents a side of Jesus that might be a little edgier or a little startling for many of us, if, we, if we're operating with a picture of Jesus that comes from maybe popular media or, or maybe even from Sunday school, of course not our Sunday school, right, but popular images of Jesus, this passage might seem dark. It might, it might jump off the page at us. And so what are we to do with this more grown-up adult version of Jesus? Well, we're going to be looking at that question in three parts this morning. We're going to see three things from Jesus. The first is a fire started the second is a change in weather. And the finally, we're going to see Jesus issue a call to reconciliation. And, and by the end, we'll see that Jesus is indeed a little maybe darker, more grown up in this passage than we're used to. But ultimately, it's this real Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible that offers us hope and peace. I hope we will see that this morning. So we are going to begin with a fire started. I'm going to reread verses 49 through 53 for you. Jesus says, I came to cast fire on earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two, two against three. 
They will be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. I always wonder why Jesus adds that last part. It seems rather obvious in some ways. Nonetheless, did you notice that this is definitely a harsher Jesus than we're, we're used to. Last week, I noted that Jesus' transition from one parable to another was rather harsh. If you remember a couple weeks ago, Tommy looked at the parable in which Jesus tells the story of a master who comes to serve his servants, and it's full of grace. And then all of a sudden, last week, he says, but know this, and he, he sort of veers sharply the other direction. Well, this week, the transition is maybe even harsher, if that's possible. The Greek grammar here that we translate in English, would that, actually is a giveaway. It tells us that Jesus has raised his voice. Jesus is shouting at this point. He's sort of gotten to a pitch here. And you notice last week, Peter interrupted him. He sort of had a question like, excuse me, Jesus, you notice this week, nobody pipes up. Everyone is very quiet all of a sudden. And Jesus begins by saying, I have come to cast fire on earth. And then he makes a series of startling statements. And we're going to be looking at those as, as we move forward. But perhaps the most startling the one that leaps off the page right away is what comes in verse 51. Did you notice when Jesus says, do you think that I have come to bring peace on earth? No, but rather division. Why is that so startling? Well, to see why it's so startling, we have to look back once again at an Old Testament prophet. Last week, we looked back at the prophet Daniel. This week, we're going to be looking at the prophet Isaiah. I'm going to read you a passage From Isaiah chapter 9. It should be a familiar passage if you've been in church for a little while. It's often one we read at Christmas time. And so it's going to be Isaiah uh, 9, 2 through 7. Isaiah says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of peace, of the increase of his government, and of peace, there will be no end. So centuries before the New Testament, the prophet Isaiah and the Holy Spirit looks forward and he sees the kingdom of the Messiah, the Redeemer that God is going to send to rescue his people. And as Isaiah sees this vision of the kingdom, it is a kingdom of peace, ruled over by a great Prince of Peace. Actually, in Isaiah chapter 11, where he sort of expands even further on this messianic kingdom, the peace is so great that it extends even to the natural world, that in the Messiah's kingdom, the wolf shall lie down with the lamb, and the lion and the calf shall graze together, that even the violence and bloodshed in nature has been calmed, has been done away with by the coming of the Messiah. There's peace between God and humanity, humanity and other creatures because the Prince of Peace is on the throne ruling over creation. Now flash forward to the New Testament, and we find these passages and this vision applied to Jesus himself. Jesus, according to the New Testament, is the Prince of Peace. And we see Jesus make that a centerpiece of his ministry. 
The very first words of Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of Luke are, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Now, I know I've said this before, but it always bears repeating. If you read through the Gospels and you read closely what Jesus says, he has not come in order to show people a way to get to heaven. In fact, he barely talks about heaven, if at all. On the other hand, he talks a lot about this thing called the kingdom of God. When the dead will be raised, creation will be made new, and there will be peace between God and humanity, humanity and other creatures. That is the focus of Jesus' ministry. It's really the center of his preaching. And if that peaceable kingdom is the center of what Jesus is about, that's why this passage in Luke chapter 12 might be so startling. It might take us aback. Because doesn't Jesus outburst here? Doesn't it contradict that vision? Isn't there tension between what Jesus says here and this kingdom of peace that has been promised? How can Jesus in one breath promise to be the prince of peace and in the next breath say, do you think I've come to bring peace on earth? No, but rather division. I think one of the reasons we struggle here, that we might sense some tension here, is because we don't really grasp or appreciate how revolutionary a thing this thing called the kingdom of God really is. I think if you ask most Christians, do you want God's kingdom to come fully on earth? I think most Christians would say, well, yes, of course I want God's kingdom to come. In fact, in the Lord's Prayer, don't we pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? But as we pray those words, I'm not sure we understand just how radical they are, how dangerous they are in a sense. I'm a little bit sick this morning, as you might be able to tell. In other words, I don't think we realize what we're asking for when we pray for God's kingdom to come. You know, many of you might know that uh, Becca and I recently bought a house in Kent. One of the selling points of this house is its spacious backyard. At least it's, it's spacious for our price bracket. There's only one problem with the backyard. It is covered, in fact, infested by thicket after thicket of black Japanese spreading bamboo. (laughs) Your reaction says it all. You know, Beck and I didn't have much experience with bamboo. It's not a common plant in California at all. And so at first we said to ourselves, how hard could it be? It's basically just thick grass, right? We have since learned better. It turns out bamboo is a greedy, destructive plant. It chokes out all the life around it. And we've had to come to the realization that for us to have a garden in which other creatures can flourish, for us to renew the land, so to speak, that that we own, that bamboo's got to go. The bamboo has to be removed. And so one of the first things we bought this winter was a chainsaw. And we've also had to rent a backhoe to take it up by the roots. Now, if you were to ask the bamboo in, in our garden, is the coming of renewal, is the coming of newness, to Stephen Becca's garden. Is that a good thing? Is that gospel? I think the bamboo would say, no, it's not. And that's because to the destroyer, to the thing that's wrecking the present reality, the coming of a new reality isn't necessarily good news. It certainly doesn't feel very peaceful to the bamboo, to the destroyer. And I think the kingdom of God is a little bit like that. When Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, He's not talking about a destination after death. What he's saying is, rather, he is about to tear reality as we know it up by the roots. 
and renew creation from the ground up. And in the process, some things are going to be torn out. Some stuff has to be removed. And that in the future, that will be true on a cosmic level. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. Violence will come to an end at the cosmic level. In the future, it will also be true at a national level, you might say, that nations and different groups of people will no longer be at war with one another. Many of the things we prayed about this morning will no longer be going on in Messiah's kingdom. But in the present, in the right now, it's true on a very personal level. You notice when Jesus says that he has come to tear things up by the roots, he's come to shake things up, he doesn't name nations or or the cosmos, he names personal relationships. In fact, the relationships that are closest to us, and that might be startling, because often we look in life to those relationships as a source of comfort and peace. So here's what I want to ask you. Sorry if this ruffles some feathers. Think about your closest relationships, your relationship with your spouse, with your children, siblings, whatever is closest to you. Would you describe those relationships as perfectly peaceful? Would those relationships necessarily have a place in a kingdom of perfect peace? Would they belong there? If not, and I think if we're honest, the answer is no, then that means there are some things in you and also some things in other people that have to be rooted out, that have to be weeded out for the kingdom to come. I mean, maybe I just made a list about myself. Maybe you're a little self-centered or cynical or critical or sarcastic in your relationships. You can make your own list when you go home this morning. It'll be lots of fun, trust me. But if that's true, those things have to be weeded out. And if so, I've got some good news and bad news for you. Jesus will weed them out. That's the good news. The bad news is, is he will weed them out. And that often feels like fire. That's the image Jesus uses. It doesn't feel very peaceful for this kingdom of peace to come. It feels like a fire has been lit. And to make matters even more fun or complicated, as this fire of the kingdom sweeps over the world, some will embrace it and others won't. Some will embrace the gospel of the kingdom and be renewed by it, and others won't. And so in one house, you'll have three who do and two who don't, Jesus says. And that will create even more conflict because you've basically got two realities, a new reality of the kingdom of God and the old reality coming to heads basically. And so the coming of peace, Jesus' peace, doesn't in the, in the present always feel very peaceful. And so with all of that you know, happening, we have to think, how do we deal with this conflict? What are we supposed to do? And Jesus does get there eventually. But before he does, he makes another point, and it's the point we need to look at next. Jesus talks about a change in weather. And so I'm going to read to you verses 54 through 56 once again. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? At this point, Jesus turns to the crowd away from the disciples. Honestly, the disciples are probably pretty relieved that his attention is turned elsewhere for a moment. You know, the crowd has been listening in this whole time, and they're probably thinking to themselves, who does this guy think he is? You know, our Pharisees, our rabbis, teach us how to follow the law, right? They teach us how to live better, be a little more moral. This guy, on the other hand, wants to tear the world up by its roots. He wants to turn the world upside down. Who does he think he is? 
And it's perhaps to those people especially that Jesus issues a warning. He compares the present moment to the calm just before a major change in weather. The present time, says Jesus, is like the calm before a storm or, or scorching heat. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, you recognize what, what the signs are just before a storm hits. And so you ought to recognize what is happening right in front of your face. The kingdom of God is breaking in to the present reality, and it will come fully. And when it does, there will be none of that old reality left. And what that means is if you're sort of attached to the old reality, if, if you're sort of content with the way things are now, for you, time is nearly up. Frankly, the time is running out. That someday soon, the kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. The, the lion and the calf will graze together. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. And at that point, there's no time left for those who haven't embraced the gospel of the kingdom. They will enter into the reign of the prince of peace and the opponents of peace will be rooted out like bamboo, so to speak. Now, that was true in the first century. It's also true today. You know, I think every generation of the church, if you, if you look at church history, every generation likes to speculate whether it's the last one, right? Are we living in the last days? Christians today will sometimes do that. Honestly, that's kind of foolish, to be completely frank with you, because biblically speaking, the last days began with the ministry of Jesus, of course, we're living in the last days. Every generation since Jesus has been in the last days. Remember last week, Jesus says the Son of Man, that he himself will come like a thief in the night, that it will come at a moment when you don't expect. And so the most we can say at any given moment is the kingdom is coming soon, or the kingdom is imminent. And so because it's imminent, we have to be ready. And because it's imminent, what Jesus says next is all the more important. Jesus issues a call to reconciliation. And so I'm going to read you the last part of the passage, verses 57 through 59. Jesus says, And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer puts you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. So Jesus, one last time, shifts the image again. He offers one last metaphor or parable to sort of get at what he's talking about. And in this scenario, we have two people who are going to a judge. There's one person who is owed money and another person who is his debtor. And you notice in this scenario, the debtor is just assumed to be guilty. That if they reach the judge, if they get to the judge, the debtor is going to be put in prison. He's just assumed to be guilty. In other words, the debtor is an imminent danger in this parable or this image. And that would have immediately sounded very ominous to Jesus' audience. Because as pious Jews, many of them Pharisees, you know, experts in the law, they would know their Old Testament. They would know that in the Old Testament prophets, God is often presented as building a court case against his people, Israel. God is the accuser, in a sense. He has the, the file of evidence against Israel. But it actually gets worse than that. Because in the divine court, God is not only the one who's building the case, God is also the judge. He's not only the one to whom the debt is owed, he's the one who will judge the debt. And so if this is what Jesus is getting at, they're supposed to think of God as the judge in this parable, then the people would conclude we're in imminent danger. If we are the debtor in this parable, we need 
to do something quickly. And it's probably at that point that we get the first hint of grace in this passage. It's a heart passage, but you notice what Jesus says. He, he offers an imperative in verse 58. He says, as you go with your accuser, settle with him on the way. Now, this verb settle can also be translated as be reconciled with your accuser. In other words, Jesus holds out the possibility that there can be reconciliation. There can be peace between God and the debtor, God and his people, right? That there is a possibility of reconciliation. But the time is short, and so Jesus says in the imperative, be reconciled or settle with your accuser. You know, Jesus' language here of reconciliation actually reminds me of how years later the Apostle Paul will describe his own ministry. Paul talks about reconciliation. I'm going to read you a passage from 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 through 21, in which Paul describes his ministry. And you can see the similarity here. So this is 2 Corinthians 5. Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You notice Paul's appeal here, the way Paul describes his own ministry, is very similar to Jesus' parable. Paul says, be reconciled. Before the kingdom of God has come fully, be reconciled to God. But Paul actually goes further than that. You notice he doesn't just hold out the possibility of reconciliation. He also names the means by which that reconciliation comes about, the way you can actually be reconciled. And you notice it's Jesus himself. In other words, the very Jesus who sounds so harsh here in Luke 12 is the means by which we are reconciled. Jesus is the one who actually bears the debt of the debtor on the cross so that the debtor can be reconciled to the judge, God the Father. Now we opened up this morning by saying the Jesus in, in the end of Luke chapter 12, he's not exactly Disney Jesus. Right? This might sound harsher than we're used to from Jesus. But ultimately, even Jesus, when he's sort of speaking very strongly, when Jesus says, the kingdom of God is coming, it is a kingdom of peace, but all those opposed to peace, and that's frankly all of us who are in sin, are potentially rooted out for the kingdom to come. Even when he's saying that, he's trying to point us to grace. He's trying to point us to the gospel by which we can be reconciled to God. And he knows how Paul opens up the message of reconciliation. He says that in Christ we can be a new creation. That it's not just that we don't have to fear the coming of the new creation, that we can actually be a part of it right now. That through the Holy Spirit you can actually enter into the kingdom of peace in the present time. And the way that works itself out in sort of your daily life is that just as you're reconciled to God through Christ, so we begin to be reconciled to one another that the conflict and violence that sort of fills our world can come to an end, at least in our community, in the body of Christ, that that peace of Christ begins to extend even to our human-in-human relationships. And we see that, of course, every week, don't we, at the Lord's table, where there is reconciliation. We come together. And so I guess the message I want to leave you with this morning is a new creation is coming. 
that it's imminent, that when it comes, the old reality will be gone, that the wolf will lie down with the lamb, and there will be a renewed, resurrected cosmos. And that can be bad news, because if we're not in Christ, then in a sense, we're so much bamboo that needs to be weeded out for that to happen. But the good news is that if we embrace Christ, we actually become part of that new creation now. And if that's true, then in a sense, when the new creation comes, it'll be like coming home because we'll have been a part of it all along. So I want you to think about that and also pray with me, please.